So I was about three years old when it was first realized that I needed some corrective lenses to see the world properly. As a young lad, I had a lazy eye in my left eye. I had stigmatism. I was farsighted. Um, And I began this yearly trek of going to the eye doctor to have my eyes checked and also to see if my prescription had changed at all. And you know the drill at eye doctors, don't you? That they, they put the, the that big thing that has all the lenses in front of you, and they um, which is worse, one or two? When I was a kid, I didn't know how to answer this because I felt I was like they're both bad. Can you read that third line? No, I cannot. I'm pretty sure you didn't put a hieroglyphic up there. That's probably English, but I can't tell. It's amazing, isn't it, how glasses give you, uh, for those of you that wear corrective lenses, how glasses give you the ability to see the world clearly. And without them, um, it's very difficult to see what's going on in the world. I remember when my prescription started to change, I would get these tremendous headaches. And it would be because my eyes were straining to make sense of all of the visual imagery in front of me. James is an interesting book. When you look at it, it was not the favorite of Martin Luther. James is one that you do well to, uh, to bring along some good, seasoned, trusted uh, partners to study it because um, James can come across a bit heavy-handed at times. Um, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. James is trying to give us um, not just pithy sayings, not just platitudes for life. James is looking to give us a way of understanding or seeing the world. So this, uh, this morning we begin a series that will take us all the way through the fall, looking at James's um, work. James is very concerned for his readers about living life now, life in the present. So I would invite you to um, pray this morning that God would give us all um, the lens or the grid or the way to see uh, the world through the eyes of the gospel as he has given words to the apostle James. Stand with me, if you would, and turn to James chapter 1. We'll read the first 12 verses this morning. Hear God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Beloved, this is God's word, and it is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, now would we um, be a people who attentively listen, not only to the word of God, but to the Spirit of God who dwells within his people. We pray that you would give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. By way of introduction, James was fairly short, wasn't he? Not much of an explanation about who he is, not much of an invitation as to why you should listen to him. He simply writes in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there have been some over the ages that have disputed who exactly it was that wrote the book of James. Um, I happen to be persuaded, as do most of the scholars, that it was James, the brother of Jesus. The New Testament really only gives us three options in terms of uh, those who would have been candidates to have written the book of James. One of them would have been the, uh, the apostle of uh, Peter, James, and John, but that one isn't really likely. There is uh, another James that is named, um, but after he's named, we don't hear about him anymore. And there is another James who was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this James was obviously um, not Jesus' biggest fan uh, growing up. It might not be fair to call it sibling rivalry. It's more incredulity. If you look at John chapter 7, you'll see a very interesting account of how Jesus was mocked even by his own family. And so it's interesting as we look in the record of the New Testament that James, uh, James the Just became an advocate for uh, the resurrection, for the law of God. In Acts 15, we see him play a prominent role in the Jerusalem council. But it's the Apostle Paul that records for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that in the resurrection of Jesus, of all the ones that Jesus went to, Paul singles out James specifically as one the risen Jesus went to. And it is after that moment, whether that moment was a, uh, a saving event or a confirming event, we don't know. But we do know that after that, James was changed. James doesn't mince a lot of words. There's 108 verses in this letter 59 of them are commands. Now, what's interesting about that is that James is not hard to understand. It's the living out 
of the book of James that becomes a completely different matter. Some have argued that there is, there seems to be no gospel at all in the book of James. After all, the name Jesus is only mentioned twice. One in chapter 1, verse 1, and again in chapter 2, verse 1. Otherwise, we don't see Jesus mentioned in the book of James. We don't see the, the familiar trappings of gospel language, such as redemption and justification and all the other things that we find woven into Paul's letters. So what gives? Why is it it profitable for us to study James? Several things, I think, and indulge me for a moment. James is taking us on a journey. Again, his words not difficult to understand. The implications of those words, a different story altogether. When we think about James, we're thinking about what it is to have wisdom. And that really is um, the first main thing that James is trying to address here in these opening verses. But James is concerned for us is about living life now. He's not so much concerned about that day that will come, nor is he really interested in things that have previously transpired. There is a prophetic urgency to his words that it would do us well to hear. Now, I do believe The gospel of grace is woven in throughout James because these words that he gives expose in us our own inability. If you think you have the Christian life down to a science, then read James. If you think that your journey of sanctification is nearing nearing its heights, read James. But see, here's the thing. This is not some sort of book that's designed just to fire salvo after salvo at a people that can't even come close to keeping the commands. As we'll see in James chapter 4, it's all about the gracious God who is inviting us in to see that obedience in this way is not defeat but delight. And it is God who provides graciously, abundantly, again and again and again. Now the only other danger I'll point out as we begin our study is the danger of trying to take James as simply just cherry-picked Proverbs. Let me give you an example. Verse 2 under this big first heading that I'm calling the path of the Christian being trials. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, for those of you who are aspiring counselors, those who would be aspiring to to give comfort and care to your friends or your family, Let me invite you to take this word of advice from one brother to another. 
James is not giving you here a script of what to say to someone who is wounded, hurting, and in the midst of an acute trial. There are plenty of words to say. These aren't one of them. You might end up being much like Job's companions in the book of Job. Healed wounders. James is not trying to give a paradigm for counsel or care in the moment. He's giving you perspective on life. How do I know that? James is concerned about the present. And James sees all of life as a trial. How do I know that? Well, let's consider some of what he says here. When he says, count it all joy, he is saying that trials have a purpose. This idea of counting it is to make a mental judgment about the trial. This could also be uh, translated, consider it all joy. We are to have within our bones a, uh, a robust and a deep and a grounded faith that gives us the ability to step back even from, for just a moment from the trials of life and understand what they are doing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, when you meet tests of various kinds. You see, he addressed the letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is language of exile. This is language of of discomfort. Scholars agree that what James is saying here is not, normally life is good, but when you encounter a trial, be happy about it. That's not what he's saying. Rather, giving his readers the grid, the lenses to see the world, that all of life, all of this time and the already and the not yet and this time between the redemption of Jesus accomplished and applied through the cross and the resurrection and the time when Jesus comes again, all of this is a trial because all of this is not ultimately where we will be. Count it all joy. He's not saying that we have, um, that we're just supposed to kind of learn the lesson that we grow strong through adversity. This is not what James's heart is. It's not that, that we grow strong through adversity, that somehow we just sort of suck it up. James wants us to see the world in a certain way, The goal of life, as James would have us see, is not to find maximal pleasure. Our goal in life is maturity and endurance, not a pain-free life. So the fact that James is saying, count it all joy when you experience trials, is not him saying to get back on the track to maximum enjoyment of life. You have to put on a happy face and say, I'm doing great when life is throwing salvo after salvo at you. No, what James is concerned about when life is bringing trials is not the trial itself, but what the trial will produce. 
And he's saying rejoice in what the trial is doing in you because it is producing something in you and verifying the faith that God has given you. It's not that we put on a happy face and say that our world is great because we are having trials. Our response to trials is what reveals our heart's condition. Do we endure in trials and rejoice? Or do we grow angry? Do we blame God? Do we say, you have forsaken me or you have forgotten me? James says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, for James, this is more than just the, the acute times of, of a hospital room or a flooded farmland or things not going our way. What James is thinking about here is beyond the times of just acute trial or testing. He is looking at all of life being a trial. For James, our greatest threat is not external, but rather it is internal. James feared complacency more than persecution. He feared that people would be strong in knowledge, but weak in faith lived out in life. Through it all, James is commending a mindset, a view of the world that would help us see the ups and downs of it correctly. Have you noticed when things are going well in your life, you find yourself almost, I won't say apathetic, but I'll say um, sometimes indifferent to the things of God. It's only when the crisis comes that we find ourselves bringing out um, our Bibles. We find ourselves once again going to prayer. We find ourselves leaning in on the people of God because it's when the crisis comes that we most acutely feel our need. And see, that was James's biggest fear. It wasn't that there was going to be this great persecution, though certainly that is a possibility. James's biggest fear was complacency. That we'd be a people that would be caught up in just the ordinary of life and not see every moment as an opportunity to see the faith of God, uh, the faith that God has given us um, matured and deepened and flourish within our hearts. Another thing that tends to happen is we tend to look at trials and as good Presbyterians, Knowing Romans 8.28 by heart that God works all things for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord. We go, aha, it's a trial, it's a test. I must now begin to pay attention and see what God is teaching me. Perhaps he is teaching me generosity. Or perhaps he's teaching me not patience. I definitely didn't pray for patience. I know that from Sunday school. Never pray for patience. 
We begin to analyze why we're, we're experiencing a trial, and we begin to try and figure out what's the specific lesson that God's trying to teach me. So, okay, this, is, this isn't going to go well. Nerdy sci-fi question. Did anybody watch the show Quantum Leap with Scott Bakula back in the day? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. Time-traveling guy. It's too hard to explain. Um, for five of you, this illustration will make sense. For the rest of you, listen to the sermon again. Wikipedia is your friend um, most of the time. Every, every episode, when, 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 uh, when Sam would leap into a new uh, set of circumstances, he would try and figure out, what's the one thing that I have to set right in order to leave this, this place? And we do the same thing in trials. Maybe if I learn my lesson, if God's teaching me patience, fine, I'll try and learn patience. We think that if we learn our lesson, the trial will go away. But perhaps what we're not getting is that James is not prescribing a specific truism or a specific trait we're supposed to learn. What James is instead showing is that a well-rounded, well-grounded maturity is the point in trials and all of life is trial. So count it joy because you are getting a chance to see God at work in you. Because he says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He doesn't want you to be complacent. He wants you to be complete. Because the goal of God at work in you is not just to swoop in like a superhero when things get really bad but for you to thrive in him, in all of life, in all of life's circumstances, in order for you to grow in grace. Which is why the path of the Christian is trials. But look with me what else he says. If the path is trial, the prayer is wisdom. Look, so he just said, Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And now he goes on and says, if you are lacking wisdom, let him ask God. James assures believers that trials will produce maturity. But he adds a caveat to this. Through trials, we have the opportunity to see our faith proven genuine, to see God make good on the promises that he has made. The one thing that we lack is the way to make sense of it all, which is why we need wisdom. We need wisdom to make sense of the trial itself, and then we need wisdom to believe that God intends our good, that he allows trials because We need them. Now, I make that statement very carefully. In order for that statement to not sound um, horrendous, that we need trials, we must understand that the character and nature of God is good. 
It is trustworthy. Verse 5 tells us of a way to pray to that end. Look at what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So let's take that statement apart. There's four parts that I want us to see. There's a God who gives, part one, who gives generously, part two, to all, part three, without reproach, part four. Okay? So first one, the giving nature of God. If you were to take and, um, and apply a very wooden translation of the Greek, that is, if you were to take it and translate it in such a way that it is, um, that it's just on the page, the way it appears in the language, with no smoothing it to make it flow in English, what you would have is let him ask the giving God. What James is intending for us to understand here is that giving is so rooted into part of God's nature that for God to give is simply an overflow of who he is. There is no deciding to give because it is God who gives. This is crucial for guys like me who are all the time presuming that God is really frustrated with him. He says, pray to the God who gives, the giving God. He delights in giving. He gives according to his character. It's not contrary to himself, but it is the overflow of the very essence of his character. Secondly, Pray to the God who gives generously. Literally, God simply gives. God's gifts do not become debts. Let me say that again. God's gifts do not become debts. When God gives generously, he's not calculating how he's going to get a return on his investment, nor is he sitting there keeping some sort of grand heavenly ledger of all the ways he's blessed you, but what have you done for him lately? God's gifts do not become debts. He, bel- he delights in giving. It is his nature to, to give without calculating the return or the price that we must pay to receive his gifts. Third thing, God gives to all. Listen, God does not play favorites. He doesn't show partiality. He doesn't give first preference in line to the one who's been successful at having their Bible reading plan since January 3rd. I say January 3rd because I make it two days into Bible reading plans. I know the first two days of McShane's Bible reading plan down pat. The rest of them, no idea. God doesn't play favorites when you come to him and ask. He gives generously to all. Fourth, he doesn't give, he doesn't show uh, reproach when he gives. He gives generously to all without reproach. There's no fault finding with God. No side eye, no stern lecture, No, why didn't you ask sooner? He gives because he is the giving God. 
And so if you lack, pray, and he will give you wisdom. James goes on, and he says, let them ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I had trouble with this passage. As I have mentioned, I sometimes doubt. And by sometimes, I mean a lot of the time. And I wasn't kidding when I said in Mark chapter 9 that the prayer of the father who took uh, his son to Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is pretty close to being one of my life verses. So what does it mean then if those who doubt have no access to God's blessings? Well, again, we have to understand that when James uses the word doubt here, as it's translated, it doesn't carry with it the same meaning that our use of doubt would carry along. We say, I doubt the Cowboys are going to win. Sorry, I doubt the, give me another pro team quick. Thank you. I doubt the Patriots. Now that's going to end up bad for somebody too. <laughs> Rangers. Okay, let's not call out anymore. <laughs> this is getting sad. Now, when he says doubt, he means a divided heart, a divided mind. He's looking at someone who's a fence sitter, someone who is, who is doubting the very nature and the character and the goodness of God. He's trying religion on. He's one who is saying, well, maybe it will work this time. Where God's word and God's promises are used more like a last ditch than a first response. James is saying there's no place, there's no room for um, divided affections. You either believe or you don't. There is no middle ground. There is no playing church. So James says, let your let your affections, let your gaze, let your, um, let your life be anchored in the good, the true, the trustworthy promises of God. You are going to have uncertainty in the moment. You are not God. You do not know how life is going to work out. And that is okay. At the end of the day, it is not up to you to know how life is going to work out. It is up to you to put your faith and your trust in the one who is shaping and working all of life out. You are not God. You are called to trust God. There's a difference. God provides what he demands. Do you need wisdom? He'll provide it. Do you need faith? He will give it. What is the condition? Simply this, that you know that what you need is from him. 
and that your confidence is this, that what is at work in you is greater than anything the world can throw at you. And that's why the third thing that we see in our text this morning is the posture of the Christian. The posture of the Christian is trust. Um, Proverbs 30 says this, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, in verses 9 through 12, James is giving a tangible example of a type of trial that you may encounter in the world. I do not think, and other commentators don't think, that this is James saying that if you're rich, you're, you're doomed. What I think James is doing here is giving, one, encouragement to the poor and also a sober reminder to the rich. You see, if we see that God ultimately is going after the poor, the needy, the ones who are weak, then we understand that it is a sober warning to those who are rich that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. James is providing a type of corrective that that Jesus provided as well, that poverty is not a sign of judgment, just as wealth is not a sign of blessing. The kingdom of God involves a great reversal, an exalting of the humble and a humbling of the exalted. For James, wealth is not the problem. Rather, it is the rich person's attachment to it and the poor person's lust for it. Wealthy people know that since it is the poor that God most often chooses, their wealth places them in a precarious position, and their only true reason for glory is the same as that of the poor, that they know and are known by a gracious God. James may very well have had in mind the prophet Jeremiah who said this in Jeremiah 9. He says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, this this statement here, um, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Um, uh, Verse 11 is, is common in Jewish wisdom literature. It's a way to remind us all that the world and all that is in it is fleeting. But then we see verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Beloved, the first readers of James um, needed to hear this, and we do as well. Many of us, I fear, are strong in the knowledge of our faith, but weak in the life of or in the practice of it. Trials come of acute varieties or abstract varieties, and we are tossed here and there and everywhere. It is not joy for us. It is, what have I done? Why are you mad at me, God? But see, James is looking to see um, that through trials, trials are producing in us the evidence that God loves us. Why? Because we cling to him. We hold fast to him. And when our grip fails, we trust that his grip on us still has us. This is what God is doing in us. 
The test of the genuineness of our faith is not how we start, but it's how we finish. So when trials do come, they give us an opportunity to see our faith flourish. Instead of us thinking that God has forgotten us or forsaken us, it is an opportunity to trust that God is forging good in us. When trials come, they push us to act, not just to think. If we withstand the tests of life, we see that our faith in Christ is genuine. So, beloved, if you are, if you're here, and you, like me, have found that the uh, trials in your life bring you to a point of not rejoicing, um, but anger, frustration, sadness, know this. God is good. He is the giving God. His heart is generous and his design for you is ultimately good. He may not remove your trials, but beloved, he will redeem them. Today is the day to hear the good news of the gospel, that God's grace today is giving you a way to make sense of your world that resonates with God's heart. Not doubting, but firm, not tossed around, but steadfast because the crown of life that Jesus secured is what God is fitting and fashioning for his people. The good news that James brings to us today is that though trials may come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul.